Well, church family, a joy to be with you in worship. In a moment, we're going to go to God's Word. We're continuing a sermon series in the parables of Jesus. But show of hands, how many of you were here last week and heard our 71-piece orchestra that were guests? How amazing. Anderson, thank you for orchestrating that to have them come. You know, it was very sad for me to not be here. My parents gave uh, my wife and I and boys a Christmas gift. We spent the weekend together, went to the Pantages Theater, saw a matinee showing of The Lion King. And so when we set that date back in December and I heard the date of the orchestra, I was like, oh, so can you promise us that we will do more things like that? Church, would you like that to have more opportunities? Very much looking forward to that for other services as well. And as you open your Bibles right now, a reminder that that pew Bible in front of you is our gift to you. If you don't own Scripture, we're going to Matthew chapter 13. It's also wonderful. We've been sharing on our broadcast services that in person we want people to come, but also if people are unable to come, that we'd like to send you a pew Bible. And so we are literally mailing our physical pew Bibles with notes in them to people on other sides of the country. Uh, there's people on other sides of the world who are joining our services, joining with us. And so it's a great reminder, if you miss any of these Sundays, you can get caught up on our sermon series. And as we continue in the gospel according to Matthew, we get to one of my favorite parables. In Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9, really illustrates where we're headed as a church. It illustrates what it means for us to be the church at work. And I will continue to refer back to this parable again and again and again. And in many ways, this parable is a lens through which we can understand all the parables. Very important parable, the parable of the sower. Let me read Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Let anyone with ears listen. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word, as we say every week. Thanks be to God. Three things for those of you taking notes on your phone, on a piece of paper in your mind. First, why does Jesus teach in parables? Number two, what does this parable mean? Number three, how you can experience an exponential growth of God in your life. Number one, why does Jesus teach in parables? It says right here, verse 10. Then the disciples came. Keep those Bibles open. I'm going to read a longer section here. The disciples came and asked him, why? Thank you, disciples, for asking the question that we ask. Why, Jesus? Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answers. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that, quote, seeing they do not perceive and hearing they do not understand, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Clear as mud? I mean, they ask the question, why do you speak in parables? And on the surface, I'm lost. Jesus, what? Did you just say another parable? What are you talking about? Very important what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, you know, I teach in parables because it's a really creative way to communicate God's truth. Though it is very creative, it's much more. Uh, Jesus does not say, this is my preferred preaching style. He doesn't say that. In fact, actually, Jesus teaches in a variety of ways. And what's fascinating, if you study the life of Jesus, here we are in Matthew 13. Where's 13 come? After 12. Where's 12 come? After 11. Where's 11 come? After 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, right? Three years of the public ministry of Jesus, and now there is a turning point where Jesus begins to almost exclusively teach in parables. Before that, Jesus spoke plainly and directly. Pray for those who persecute you is not a parable. There's no mystery there. To love your neighbor as yourself, to love your enemy, to forgive others, those aren't aren't parables. Jesus just speaks plainly. And what's so fascinating is to know that Jesus wasn't the inventor of parables. In fact, parables are used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. But every single time a parable was used in the Old Testament, it was primarily because God was confronting the brokenness of the human heart, the inward facingness of the nation of Israel, selfishness, and sin. Every single instance in the Hebrew Scriptures when a parable came, you had to understand that God was confronting something. For example, King David, after that whole incident with Bathsheba, he takes another man's wife as his own, orchestrates her husband to be killed in battle. Nathan the prophet comes to King David, and what does he do? He speaks in a parable. You know, we live so many thousands of years removed from first century years. And for those who were steeped in Scripture, they knew that if a parable ever popped up, watch out. There's something about our character, our pattern of life, how we're living that is about to be confronted. Why does Jesus 
teach in parables? To confront the condition of the human heart. And so every time I open up Scripture and I see a parable, I now realize, oh, this this is so much more than Jesus just creatively communicating God's truth. That actually God wants to confront my heart, my character, my life. But the beauty of God's character is that at the same time God confronts, God also comforts. You see, God is both just and merciful. And we have to be very, very careful to not just prefer a fraction of God's character. You know, there's some of us who just like God's mercy, but we don't like God's justice. We want to be comforted by God, but we don't want to be confronted by God. And some people, they love to confront, and they want to use God to confront other people, and they are the least comforting people on the planet. And the fullness of who God is is perfectly reflected of God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. How is Jesus described in the Gospel of John chapter 1 that he was full of grace and truth? To be full of something means you're entirely filled with grace, entirely filled with truth. This is not balanced. You can have just a little iota of grace and a little iota of, of truth, and that's balanced. No, Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And so Jesus is confronting the broken human heart that he has been speaking very plainly. And yes, there's been illustrations before that. There's been little mini parables before that. But the vast majority of his teaching to date up until this moment is very clear. There's tremendous miracles. And what's remarkable is that crowds come And yet, as many, many, many come and see, very few stay and follow, and even less come and die to themselves. And so here Jesus has been teaching in a boat, in the water, because so many great crowds have shown up, and then he withdraws with just the disciples, and he now tells them what this parable is is all about. And as you hear what it's all about, my prayer is that you would at the same time be confronted and comforted as well. You see, they needed great comfort because they have been going out into different villages, into different cities. They had been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And some people, many people, many groups of people, even entire villages are rejecting the message. And so they come back and Jesus tells the story. And there's, if I can say it this way, there's three pieces of this parable that we need to understand rightly. There's the sower, there's the seed, and there's the soil. I love the alliteration, Jesus. The sower. Well, who's the sower? It says here, if you turn my page, I don't know if it's turning your page, take a look in your Bibles. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart, and that is what is sown on the path. You see, right from the get-go, it says that the sower is anyone who shares the seed. Well, what's the seed? It's the word of God, the word about the kingdom of God. What's so remarkable is that the sower is not just God, it's not just Jesus, it's 
anyone who chooses to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was raised and taught that the sower was exclusively God. And that completely reoriented this entire parable for me. I thought that my role was just to be the good soil, which we'll get to in a bit. But scripture says, and Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he is giving them great comfort. And he's saying that any single person who shares the good news of the gospel, they are a sower. And what's so remarkable is that there's no detail given about who this sower is, what they look like, whether they're ordained or not, how old they are, whether they've graduated seminary, whether they have a microphone in their hand. A sower is one who simply sows the seed. And as we said, the seed is the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Christ. And while there's no great detail given about the sower and no great detail given about the seed, there is great detail given about the soil. Now, this is absolutely critical. Because when Jesus tells the story, he doesn't say you've got to change the sower. He doesn't say you've got to change the seed. What he does say is that the soil has to change. Now, the problem is, is that in modern Christianity, we get this inverted, and we put all the emphasis on the sower. Listen very clearly to what I'm about to say. We live in a culture that lifts up preachers and evangelists, and they're like celebrities, they're like rock stars. And we have our favorites. And we begin to think that only they can be used by God to produce something extraordinary. But in actual fact, every single follower of Jesus, God's vision for their life is to be a sower. When you think about this church, you know the reason why some Sundays I don't preach? It's not because I need a break. Frankly, I would love to preach every single day of my life. It's the funnest part of my role. It's the easiest part of my role because I've spent so much work going to God and studying for all these decades. You know why I lift up the preaching team around me? Is because we need to never idolize one sower. And in addition to that, I encourage you, listen to other preachers from other churches. I encourage you to go to In the Word, listen to Bob Paul preach and teach I want you to get in the life groups where people are teaching God's word. I want you to see that you can't just study under somebody else who's teaching, but you can be a sower as well. In this moment, we have many volunteers who are sowing the word of God into the lives of little kids on this campus. You see, if we think that we are just supposed to be people who are good soil, what do we do? We just take and 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 miss the vision that God has for your life, which is to be a sower of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if your entire life is just spent allowing other people to sow into you, you miss out on this exponential growth that God can do in and through you. And so there's formal ways in which we gather together in which you can be trained up. In fact, we have training in different ministries. In fact, at the 11 a.m. service, we're going to acknowledge our Bethel Bible teacher graduates. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. But this is, this is beyond just the formal 
programs the church. I'm talking about your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends. When you follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, then every day and everywhere with everyone is an opportunity for you to sow the good news of the gospel into their life. There is nothing more joyful than joining God at work in planting the seeds of something that will last into eternity. This is more valuable than any promotion, any award. So for you to see yourself as a sower, regardless of who you are, in your everyday life is key. Now second, the seed. You see, we live in a world where we modify seeds. Do you know this? We have genetically modified seeds in order to penetrate different soil types, to to withstand different pests. And there's this temptation that says, you know what? Uh, We need to modify the gospel. We gotta take out the hard parts. We gotta take out the sin parts. Or some people say, you know what? We gotta double down on the hell parts. And we modify, we modify, we modify. It doesn't say anything about modifying the gospel. Now, this is key. We're not called to change God's word, but we are called to contextualize it. Jesus, I believe, gave so many different metaphors because he reminds us that the vastness and the mystery of the kingdom of God, of who God is, can't be reduced to just one illustration. He uses all these images, all these different metaphors throughout the course of his perils, throughout the course of his life. And the good news of the gospel needs to be contextualized in every space, in every culture, in every time around the globe. And you get to be part of that. Now, what's remarkable is it gets to these four different soil types. Let me just review these very quickly so that we can get to the third point, which is how you can experience this exponential growth of God in your life. There's four different soil types. Again, I read verse 18. It is the, the, the pathway. You know, back in the day, they used to walk on paths. We have better than paths. We have concrete sidewalks. We have roads. We have highways. We have freeways. Today, you walked in here, you will walk out on a pathway. Can you imagine a seed breaking through these pavers, through this wood, through your streets on your neighborhood, through the highway that you might travel on and breaking through? It's not going to happen. And in the same way, the condition of the human heart for many, many people is so well-traveled, is in such a pattern of life, a pattern of thinking, that it becomes so hardened. And Jesus, later on, he connects these people to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Their religiosity was so closed off, was so hard-hearted to the good news of the gospel that nothing could spring up in their life. You know, we use that phrase, it's their way or the highway. I want you to think, well, when their way is the highway, their soil of their soul is the highway itself. What about you? Are you so hard-hearted to who God is, to the good news of the gospel, that you don't allow the truth of God to penetrate into your life? There's good news for you. Hang on till the end. The second soil is the the rocky ground. It, it is planted, it goes into the soil, but it doesn't take root. I had a friend in his backyard, his lawn would never grow. It would never grow. He didn't understand why it didn't grow. He did all these things that it wouldn't grow. And he asked somebody to come over to his house to ask them, why doesn't my lawn grow? And the person looked at it, looked at it, and he said, when was this house built? And he gave him the answer and he came back with a shovel and he began to dig. And my friend's like, stop! My lawn, I, I barely have any lawn. Don't, don't ruin my lawn. And he's, he's still digging, digging, digging. And all of a sudden, bang. 
It hit concrete. Apparently, the previous homeowner, their entire backyard had been paved, and instead of digging it up, you know what they did? They just put some topsoil on it, and it never grew. And Jesus makes the connection that some people, they receive the Word of God, and they receive it with joy, but it doesn't go down deep. It's shallow. And the moment hardship comes, the moment the heat of life comes, the moment of pressure, of, of culture comes, it withers up and dries away. Perhaps some of you, to this point, there's just a shallow receiving of God and God's truth in your life. God wants all of you. The third, he says, it's soil, it, it goes down deep, but something else grows up with it as well. Thorns. Growing up, I'd go to the East Coast, I'd visit my mom, some of the family, and if you've ever been to the southeastern seaboard, you've heard of this thing called kudzu. Kudzu is this invasive species, and it grows up on signs, grows up on houses, grows up on trees, and it's this invasive species that while the, the roots of a tree can grow down deep, this other thing grows up as well, and it begins to overtake and overcome and begins to sap the resources and eventually kills the plant life. This is the person who's living a double life. They have a deep relationship with God, but something else is going on in their life, whether publicly or often privately. It could be an addiction. It could be a holding on to a, a past, and there's deep shame. There's somebody in my life who I know very well where something came out recently, and it was a shock to everyone, but it is true that no matter how mature a follower of Jesus can be, who could be following Jesus for, for decades, if they allow something else to grow up in their life unchecked, unpruned, eventually it takes over. Maybe some of that is you. You come here, and you're so fearful of what God might think of you, or what others might think of you, because in reality, there's two things growing up in your life. There's good news for you today as well, which I'll get to in a moment. The fourth is this good soil. And it does something that doesn't seem natural. It seems unnatural that there is this yield of, of growth. It's 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Now, growing up, I was told, you want to be the good soil. And I was told or at least what I remember hearing, you be the good soil by being a good kid. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. And this leads to my third and final point. How do we, how do we experience an exponential growth of God in our life by being the good soil? Well, let me say very quickly and emphatically, it has nothing to do with you. A good soil becomes good soil because the owner of that soil has a vision for and the resources to absolutely transform it. And let me give you a quick little picture in summary. There's this plot of land on the corner of Lakeview Canyon Road and Agora Road in Westlake Village. And when I moved there, uh, when I first became a youth pastor uh, about 17 years ago, 18 years ago, I saw on that corner plot of land a, a gas station. It had been there for decades. And as the years went by, I went to the gas station. You know, we know what gas stations look like, of course. But then all of a sudden, it closed down. We thought, that's odd. But then we discovered that someone who owned the restaurant and hotel next door had purchased the land. And all of a sudden, huge equipment came in, and it began to rip up the concrete. This massive equipment began to dig up 
everything. Take out everything. I mean everything. The big, imagine how deep the tanks of gasoline are underneath the gas station. They ripped out everything. It went down deep. And this owner had such a vision for this place that was formerly hard, that formerly had a purpose, had a new vision for it, and it filled it with good soil and planted, ready for this, a vineyard. What formerly was a gas station is now a working vineyard and coffee shop called the Stone House. Go on a field trip. Walk through the vineyard. See what transformation happened because the owner purchased, had a vision for, had the resources for a transformation. In the same way, God longs for every single person on the planet, no matter how hard-hearted, no matter how shallow, no matter how much other growth is going on in their life, God longs to purchase you, and he purchases you at the greatest cost, the cost of his son on the cross. And by purchasing you and allowing him to purchase you, when you say, yes, Jesus is your Lord and Savior, all the equipment moves in to make that transformation. In that moment, you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the mind of Christ, and God begins a work in you and carries it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6 says. And there's this work that God wants to do in you to, to rip out all the old and plant the new. And it is this ongoing process of yielding to the Holy Spirit. And here's what's so beautiful. When you allow Jesus to do that work in you, when you allow the entirety of your life to be that good soil that God has complete access to, to rip out the bad, to remove the boulders, to plant what God wants, you grow up and you bear fruit. And this is how exponential growth can happen. You know how in, a, in an acorn exists thousands of oak trees? When you catch God's vision for your life, you know what is in you? Not just the Holy Spirit, not just the mind of Christ, the potential that one other person on the planet can receive the word of God and their life can be transformed. You know what this means? That within you, an entire generation of people can spring up because you were willing to be used by God to plant the seed of God's word in their life. You know what this means? That within you, churches exist. Missionary movements exist. Christ-centered businesses exist. You know what dwells within you? The potential for eternal work. So when we catch the vision not to be a pastor at work or a staff at work, but a church of work, in a church at work, God says, I have a vision for this plot of land that isn't space, it is your heart, your mind. I want to transform you exponentially more than from a gas station to a vineyard. We simply get to yield. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. Let's let this sink in deep and allow God to do that which only God can do. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love, and I thank you that there's moments, like in the Corinthian church, where people began to pick and choose their favorite teachers. There was Paul, there was Apollos, and God, I love that Paul addressed it and said, you know, some plant and some water, but it is God who causes it to grow. So God, would we be reminded that it's not about the sower, it's not about the seed, but it's about how God used all of it in our hearts and minds for your glory now and forevermore.
In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.